and welcome back to another exciting episode of DSLR Film New Podcast. With me today is John. What are you doing, John? Oh, I'm just sitting around. Sitting around? What are you doing? I'm, uh, <laughs> well, I just actually took the dogs out for a walk. Those guys have gotten their exercise, and I am using this Stedman filter. I don't know if you saw that post, but yeah, I did. this thing's crazy, so... I'm going to give a quick shout out to Dave because Dave from uh, ClickNet, I believe, is his website. He goes by DC normally on the uh, forums as well as the the uh, comment section on the site. He recommended this filter. And when I saw it, I was like, ah, this looks a little hokey, you know, because when you yeah. look at it up close, it just looks like kind of screen door material. But when yeah. you feel it, it's got kind of a, a weird ribbed... Uh, I don't know how to describe it really, like a twisty sort of thing to all of the holes that are on this. And when you actually blow air through it, and I, I can do that right now, actually, the mic doesn't blow out. And this thing's like redirecting the air somehow with science to another direction. And yeah. it was amazing with that uh, lighter test. I thought, nah, this isn't going to work. You know, it's going to be bull crap. But yeah. man, you light a uh, lighter right behind this thing and you can blow as hard as you want and can't put it out. That's how much air deflection this thing is creating. So Stedman really, filters. Yeah. That's oh. so cool. I, I, cause I've tried the, like a gazillion of the expensive and cheap nylon ones. I've never heard of that. Not that I do a ton of audio, but that is the coolest thing that I've seen in a while. Yeah. I've kind of, in the past, just gone with the cheap $9 units, yeah. the ones that you can get on Amazon or whatever. And they're a gooseneck. They do a good job. When they break, you toss them. It's not really that big yeah. a deal. And it keeps spit off the microphone. But, <laughs> man, I can't believe how good this thing is. This is really impressive. So I know $44 is a very substantial amount of money to spend on a pop filter. But, guys, if uh, you need a good pop filter for, I don't know, maybe a podcast like this, this is a great thing to get. If singers... Uh, if you have a singer in the studio that screams a lot, you know, maybe you're yeah. doing some hardcore metal or something like that, this would definitely be something to invest in. And one of the examples yeah. I saw online that was really cool was actually using this on a bass drum. So they set this in front of the vent hole on the bass drum itself and then put the mic in front of that. And if you've ever done studio recordings of drums, usually you set the mic kind of off axis away from the bass drum hole or you lay it in the bottom of the bass drum with like, uh, you know, a material over the top of it or something like that. So you can get the yeah. sound, but you don't get that pressure wave hitting it. Well, with this, they were able to set the mic right in front of the vent hole, get perfect sound out of the bass drum and avoid that like pound hit of air that comes at the microphone every time. It was pretty impressive. Wow, that's a great idea. That is super cool. Do you think that – I was going to ask you too because I've never touched one of those, but do you think it would actually uh, – because I've, I've ripped quite a few. You know, you throw them in trap cases and stuff, but how do you think that thing will last, uh, you know, over the long term? As far as durability goes, the the cheaper price one that I'm using right now, which is the 101, this guy is just attached by a couple of little soldering points on the top here with the mesh underneath of it. So for durability, this one, it's more durable than the, the nylon units, but it's not going to last forever if you're um, unhooking it and moving it around and hooking it up again. If you just have it stationary and it stays in the same place, it's probably good. For about 12 or 13 more dollars, they make a fancier one that has a ring of metal all the way around holding the filter in place. And that one, I, I think it's between 51 and $62. And that's a lot more solid, and they call that the Pro. This one is mm -hmm. the uh, 
kind of like the junior model. So yeah. you spend a little bit more money, but that one, I think that would probably be well worth it for traveling, packing it up and, and doing that sort of thing. And I'll yeah. tell you what, too, if you're doing uh, voiceover stuff or if you're doing reads for something, this is really a cool little pop filter. I mean, it's hard to get excited about a pop filter. What is it doing? It's, you know, passing audio back and <laughs> blocking wind, whatever. Yeah. But yeah. the other cool thing about this, too, is if you actually A-B test it with a uh, nylon screen, you can hear the audio difference between this and the nylon screen because with the holes the way they are in this, it doesn't really block any of the audio or take out the high end, whereas that nylon kind of rolls off a little bit on the higher frequencies. And I had to get my nice headphones out and listen to it a couple times to really hear it, but it's there. And you can see it in the uh, wave spectrum as well if you take it into like Audacity or um, Audition or something like that. So yeah. it's cool. Cool. All That's right. That's cool. I like it. I like it a lot. Moving on, man. Yeah. Time for the news. This week on the news, we've got uh, the first announcement from Windows 10. We talked about this last podcast, and we're going to talk about it some more. Uh, when we talked about it earlier, they were preparing to announce. Now they've actually announced. It looks like Microsoft will be offering up a window, get it, of one year free access to Windows 10. So if you're a 7 or 8 owner and you have a valid license, you can actually upgrade for free during that one year window. That's a pretty sweet option. I myself have been testing Windows 10 for probably a couple months now, and I've been running the the developer beta version. One of the things that's kind of cool about the new version, and they haven't actually issued this out to the beta version yet, is that the new version and the demo that they showed actually has Cortana involved in it. And I don't know, have you seen Cortana at all? Or Cortana? No, no, I, I, uh... Quite quite a big uh, Apple user, so not not uh, into the Windows too too much. But so explain, please. As an Apple user, you're familiar with Siri, correct? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So Siri is like a voice assistant that is voice recognition with uh, you know kind of it can do commands. You can tell it to look for things and and ask for information. Yep. Uh, Cortana is Windows solution to that. Uh, Google also has an offering, and Amazon has their particular offering, but uh, Cortana is the built-in uh, thing that you get that basically does what Siri does on the Windows smartphones. Well, now they're incorporating it in their operating system, and it sounds like they're going to be incorporating it as well into the Xbox Live experience. So that's yeah. one sweet deal. Uh, another thing is Xbox portability. So I don't know if you've used uh, an Xbox or if you're a gamer at all. Uh, I'm not. A, I wouldn't call myself a gamer, but uh, yeah, I, I do use Xboxes, Playstations, that kind of stuff. So the Xbox right now, you can install games onto the hard drive, or you can play them off of a disc. But that's it. They're kind of locked into right. the the game console experience. Well, supposedly with this new Xbox portability, you'll be able to open up games and play them on your PC as well as your Xbox in the living room or on your computer or what have you. So I know this is less uh, film related, but what's cool about that is if your wife's watching TV and you want to rock out a first person shooter or something like yeah. that, you can definitely yeah. grab your operating system and move over to your PC or whatever. This also is supposed to support game streaming, but I'm not quite sure how that's set up. 
Uh, other features include a new uh, Internet Explorer replacement uh, that they're calling Sparta or Spartan. I, you know, whatever. Uh, that's basically yeah. they're using a new engine in the background. They're trying to compete with Google Chrome, which has become a very popular browser. Uh, another cool thing, and this is actually really sweet. Did you look at any of the HoloLens stuff? Yeah, yeah, that's that was the coolest thing for me, for sure. <laughs> so when I saw this, I thought at first it was like half-baked technology. Yeah. But I was going through it and, and reading the Wired article, and they were actually uh, putting the headset on reporters and letting them test it out. And every person that's tried it has been completely blown away by how it looks. And honestly, this is kind of what I was hoping Google Glass would be when yeah. we first heard the announcement for that. Yeah, exactly. I, this and anything that can get us closer to that, you know, what we see in movies constantly nowadays, that holographic, you know, Robert Downey Jr. throwing parts in the air and all that stuff. Anything that'll get us closer to that, I am all for. And this seems to be the first thing that's actually a big step in that direction. Yeah, it's pretty sweet. I'm yeah. I'm excited about this a little bit more than I am about the whole Oculus Rift <laughs> system. I mean, yeah. I understand that you want virtual reality and people are excited about that. But I think augmented reality is a much more practical thing right. for everyday use. Like you said, if you're doing engineering, design, all that kind of stuff, if you can have something that will follow your hands and you'll be able to see in real time, but it's not taking over your entire view so you can work on other things simultaneously, that's pretty sweet. Yeah, it, it, I, think, I think you're right because this actually gives it a lot more um, of a, a realistic um, – like user base this i mean if if this the the potential for for something like this when you can when it's augmented reality like you said is unbelievable like you know hospitals um like i mean you could i mean potentially you could have they've been talking about this for years because i work in hospitals sometimes but you could have you know a doctor operating on someone from across the country if they had to or 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 you know, at least doing simulations to show someone else how to do a crazy surgery that maybe they only know how to do, or I don't know, well, that, that kind of stuff. One of the things for uh, video editors that I kind of thought about as soon as I saw them enlarging screens on the wall and projecting that sort of thing is, man, you could have a whole clip pane on one side of your wall and your video and your timeline all up on a, a wall and still have everything around you visible. So you know, you can take your notes on a piece of paper as you're going along or whatever, yeah. and then you can also work on your edit on a full screen. I don't know if the resolution and quality is quite up there yet, but man, it's exciting if they can get it down to this size. Yeah, really. And then, yeah, what? Yeah, that's true. I, I don't know. For some reason, I didn't apply it to video editing too much. I don't know why. That, uh, but that's, that's amazing. <laughs> man, the first thing I thought of was, wow, I could scroll through my clip plane, uh, clip pane yeah. by just like moving my hand back and forth and I could, you know, move my screens around and I could do cuts yeah. by just like pointing at something and hitting stop or, you know, or like moving my hand up and down or maybe there's some kind of motion you could do. That'd be great oh, that'd because be cool. a lot of times you're like hovering over with your mouse and you're trying to, you know, use command keys and stuff like that. But imagine if you just like pointed at it and said, okay, and then it cut right there and immediately you like moved your finger a little bit and it scrolled back like 30 milliseconds and then you did it again to cut. Oh, that oh, could yeah, really like a, be an interesting way to edit. Yeah, it would be a you know you're you're like an orchestra conductor, oh, editing man. this this piece and all these things are flying around. But also too like the the implications of being able to travel lighter. Yeah, yeah, I mean, just wearing you, a pair of glasses and like yeah. having a phone or something like that. Oh, it'd be crazy. Yeah, that's that's really cool. Now, uh, one uh, of the uh, other cool things about the Windows 
uh, 10 announcement and Windows 10 in general. And I, like I said, I've been using this for a little while. Uh, Windows 8 brought this in and Windows 7 was kind of lacking it. It's a really awesome uh, copying feature. So in Windows 7, and I don't know how it works in Mac, but when you're copying files from one hard drive to another, uh, Windows 7 doesn't do any sort of check or anything on the files when it's moving them across. So you just hit Control-C and Control-V and hope that the files that are copied from one side end up the exact same on the other. There's no checksum. There's no way to uh, analyze the files or look at that. Windows 8 brought in some really awesome features where it actually checks the folders that you're copying to, sees if there's any files that match the file that you're trying to copy, asks you if you want to clone those, combine the folders, all that stuff. So if you're working on different revisions, that's a really awesome way to move files into it without recopying things over and over again or you know deleting anything that you have previously. It also, Windows 8, provides a background checksum that checks the copied files from one place to the other so that you know what you're copying is exactly what's ended up on the other side so you don't end up with a corrupted uh, video or file or something like that. And that has moved on to Windows 10. So that's a really cool thing. Uh, what I have run into, though, with Windows 10 as I've been running running the developer version is... Uh, I've had some RAID card support issues. Uh, currently, it's not working with a couple of my RAID drives. Uh, it's kind of been uh, finicky with a FireWire card that I have that I was using for my audio interface. Uh, I don't know if that's a driver issue or if they're going to get that resolved. And then the graphics card, I have an R9-290X in that particular test bed. And the R9-290X, it took three or four downloads to get that to work correctly. And then once it started working, I was still having issues with multi-screen support. So, oh, really? and then again, this they've announced this and they said Windows 10 is coming, but the current version I'm using is pre-release and they've been issuing patches for that. Now, one other interesting thing, and I haven't heard anybody really report on this, is that they did issue a security patch for Windows 10 and it basically um, bricked uh, Microsoft Office. So, <laughs> I mean, I don't do a ton of Excel spreadsheets, but I had it installed in there in case I was trying yeah. to use it for productivity. So that's yeah. another thing to think about. Uh, I haven't had any issues so far with uh, Premiere and Adobe Cloud, so that's good. And yeah. I've tried installing stuff like uh, Fruit Loop Studios and, and things like that, and they've seemed yeah. to work pretty good. So I'm excited to see how this turns out. I think this is a great combination of Windows 7 and Windows 8 where you're still using the tiles, but they're not all over the screen and it doesn't have that whole touchscreen interface as much. So we'll yeah. have to see, but I'm glad Microsoft is definitely going free. I think free yeah. is, well, well yeah, as an Apple user, that right. makes you upgrade right away, right? Yeah, exactly. Well, unless you're in the middle of projects, yeah, that's exactly. like the worst thing that you can possibly do. But um, <laughs> I, uh, I've had that happen a couple times. But um, I was just going to ask you, like, what is that uh, a normal thing to pick? Pick this like arbitrary number of it only being free for one year? Uh, I don't understand. So the one year thing, there was a lot of questions on that, and I think what's actually going on is that they're offering the Windows 10 upgrade for one year because. Windows 10, as it stands, will allow you to basically transfer directly from Windows 7 to and 8 up to 10 without losing any of your programs that are installed or anything like that. So it's a direct upgrade. But after that, I believe Microsoft is planning to start doing the same thing that Apple does, where they release annual or biannual upgrades to their operating system. And at that yeah. point, 
when those start coming out, then you won't be able to directly transfer from seven or eight. You're going to have to do pretty much a clean install. Oh, really? Yeah. Mm. And that's speculation a little bit on my part, but I think that's what's going on because they Mm. were really specific in all their literature to say that, hey, look, this is only going to be free for a year to upgrade. And the word upgrade was, you know, underlined. So I think what they're trying to say basically, and they didn't come out and say it right away, but is that you can upgrade smoothly from seven and eight right now to 10. But after that window, when they start issuing, you know, just like mountain lion and all that stuff, you know, whatever they decide to call it, like Sunnyvale or whatever, then when you (laughs) upgrade, it's just gonna, it's gonna wipe the computer and basically install windows 10, whatever version after that. So. Well, and it's a good way to get everybody on the same page so that they can continue innovating whatever they need to software-wise, hardware-wise, whatever, and 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 kind of start from there. That's a huge issue with Windows right now because Microsoft is supporting Windows 7, Windows 8, 8.1, Windows RT, you know, the Windows Phone operating system. They don't have a unified support system right now, so I think the reason they really want to push for free is so that everybody moves right away from these older operating systems to a new operating yeah. system, and yep. then they don't have to worry about taking care of all these people on the older systems, and they can get rid of some of that legacy support that they're dealing with right now. Exactly. I, no, I think I think it's a great idea, and from what I've seen, this is honestly this is the most excited for years that I've been uh, for and to even see a Windows, um, uh, you know, operating system uh, again. I just I had no no real desire to go back to windows for a long time but um this is actually really cool there's some really neat things as i was reading all this over microsoft almost feels like the underdog here it's kind of funny well i mean now now uh, this this i feel like will get them more on par with with what's what's going on but uh yeah i don't know it just seems it just seems actually innovative so and we've been i've been kind of waiting for apple to be innovative again and it's been a few years yeah a few gestures changed and a few like keystrokes changed and that's not really an upgrade no not at all nothing really to actually really innovate anymore has really happened for a while so all right moving on down the line here i've got uh, the announcement from road and i posted about this a little bit earlier this week but uh, road has moved into the wireless transmitter market Uh, in the past i was talking about the uh, mono price 2.4 gigahertz Wi-Fi frequency audio transmitter. Well, Rode is offering up pretty much the same thing. This is a 2.4 gigahertz Wi-Fi band wireless audio system. They're uh, calling this the Rode Link. It looks like it'll be priced at about 3.99, and it's a transmitter, receiver, and then a Rode lavalier microphone. Uh, you've got the normal hot shoe adapter, and it's running on Wi-Fi frequencies. Now, Rhodes put some caveats in here, and they haven't let anybody really play with this yet, but uh, one of the caveats is supposedly that with their Series 2 Wi-Fi digital transmission system, uh, this is supposed to be able to jump frequencies back and forth. Uh, If you know a little bit about the Wi-Fi band in the United States and in the world in general, there are 14 total channels available for people to use. And those go from about 2.12 gigahertz all the way up to uh, 2.482 or 85 gigahertz. And they're divided up on center frequencies. So what that means is that the band itself, depending on whether you're on B, G, or N, the center frequency has a range up and down of of 22 megahertz or... Uh, 18 megahertz or bigger, depending on how much data is being transferred. 
So even though there's 14 total frequencies reserved for Wi-Fi, and in the United States you're allowed to use 11 of those, they cross over on top of each other if you used all 11 and you get crosstalk and things just don't work correctly. So in reality, you only have four bands, maybe five bands to play around with. And even if this is jumping around, and this is the thing that um, I'm going to be testing on the Monoprice system, Wi-Fi may not be the best way to go if you are in a populated area. If you're going to somewhere like a convention or something like that, you could run into an issue like NAB, yeah. for example. There's Wi-Fi galore, but there's so much Wi-Fi that you almost can't use any of it because it's just a mess. Uh, yeah. How many times do you film in corporate settings where there's a ton of Wi-Fi signal floating around? Every single time, 100% of the time. See, <laughs> you know what I mean? And that's one of the things um, I'm surprised about is I was expecting Rode to issue a UHF transmitter, right? especially yeah. at a 399 price tag. Not to downgrade this because it is really interesting offering. And honestly, yeah. the Rode Love, I believe they retail for like 225 or 240 So yeah. the vast majority of this price is actually going to be the Love mic that they're providing with the unit. Right. The transmitters aren't going to be that expensive, but for about five fifty to six hundred dollars, you can pick up Sony's UHF offering, or the um, I believe they're up to the G three too, the Sennheiser yeah. G three units or the G two, the older units. You can get those for about five ninety nine. So they're not very far off from this. And if you go to the used market, you can get those for like three fifty to four hundred dollars, as long as you yeah. know which frequencies are allowed in your area in your country, and you're not buying something that's illegal, that's right. really an affordable option. Three ninety nine, it's a good love, but man, how many people aren't filming in places where there's a ton of Wi-Fi saturation? That was exactly what I thought. I, th- I thought it was kind of weird, the price point for for the Wi-Fi band, because that was that was what I was going to follow you up with. Is I was just going to say, I buy a lot of my stuff, like 90% of my stuff used, um, just because... Yeah, I'm cheap and whatnot, but I, I just, uh, I, I would go and rather get a Sony, like a UHF system, you know, and even if, if it was a little bit more money, actually, yeah, even, even new, um, before I, before I would do this, I just, I'm not a hundred percent sure on the whole Wi-Fi band thing. I, I don't, you know, wireless stuff has got enough ghosts and things that happen on, on a good day anyway. This, if like you said, in a lot of corporate things, I, I just don't want to risk it. Yeah, I'm looking at this too, and there's some other uh, interesting caveats to this. Uh, one thing I have highlighted is that they mention AA batteries as well as USB power. Yeah. Well, yeah. this has a range of 100 meters according to their press release, while the mono price units only have a range of about 50 meters. The mono price units. Monoprice is really good about actually giving you a bunch of technical data on their devices. Rode just kind of gives you like some bullet points that sort of mean stuff, but don't tell you everything. Well, the Monoprice unit has a five milliwatt transmitter and an expected battery life of about three to four hours. If this is able to reach double the distance, then the battery drain on this is probably going to be quite a bit higher than it is on the Monoprice unit because you're going to have to use a stronger transmitter to get the distance. So it's a five milliwatt and that gives you uh, four hours on the monoprice system. If this is a uh, hundred meters, so twice the distance, you're probably talking like a 10 or 12 milliwatt transmitter, which is going to yeah. eat up a lot more power off of your batteries. And that's why I thought it was really interesting that they mentioned the USB power packs in their press releases, because I think they might be <laughs> pointing you towards 
an upgrade where you have to buy an extra external battery to make these things last all day, like a 5,200 milliwatt hour battery or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. And, and if it's, <clears throat> excuse me, if, even if it's going to be uh, like on double A batteries, if I, if I don't buy their USB power pack or whatever they're going to sell, um, if it's only going to be like two hours, yeah, that's just, that's, that's, that's scary. That's not enough. That's not nearly enough time. Yeah, and, and not for me. I suppose you can bring uh, rechargeable batteries and go that route, and but you still, know, if it dies constantly, right? Yeah, changing it out and <laughs> you know not... having to keep an eye on it. This one yeah. now, Road is basically. Well, I'm I'm guessing here, but yeah. there's only a few uh, Wi-Fi chips that basically do what this does, uh, because any of the older generation, there were some latency issues where. Because the audio had to be transmitted from analog to di- or transcoded from analog to digital, and then broadcast via Wi-Fi, and then decoded on the other end, you actually ha- ended up introducing a delay of up to fifteen or twenty milliseconds. Now, on the monoprice units, they actually tell you that the delay is five milliseconds, which indicates that they're using the next generation of decoders and transcoders to basically bring the audio into the digital realm and bring it back out into the analog realm. Uh, those units in the past, the they were operating at a lower frequency, so they they didn't uh, transcode as fast. And so when you were going from analog to digital, that was where the latency was. And the people that owned the stuff that would go faster had proprietary patents on it. Now that stuff's out in the open. So I yeah. would guess that the encoders and transcoders for uh, the road unit and their 2.4 gigahertz system in general – Probably the same chipset and manufacturer as the monoprice units are, and Rode has just basically packaged this into something that looks a lot nicer, is giving you indication, and is providing you with a much nicer lav mic than monoprice's $89 unit. And again, wow. we're talking 200 plus for the Rode lav, and this is a 399 unit, so half your expense is probably the lav mic i'm guessing yeah. that would be yeah. my my personal opinion on it again mm-hmm. so, all horrible speculation <laughs> yeah that's okay it's fun but yeah so so i mean i guess the takeaway is is uh, grab yourself the monoprice pick yourself up a used road lav test it out or you've done that already haven't you um actually i just grabbed triple a batteries on my way home today so okay i got the mono uh, monoprice unit in and for some reason i had it stuck in my head that it was a double a system and it turns out it's triple oh. <laughs> a and Oops. i have nothing that runs on triple a in the house yeah. so i had to make a special trip out to go grab batteries for it to test it so when i get done with this podcast tonight and that's one of the things i'm going to do is i've got one of those aspen uh, lav mics that were on sale in and yeah. that has the uh uh tip ring ring sleeve four pole adapter to the tip ring sleeve adapter and i'm gonna give it a try on there and see if it works and then once i know um i'll let everybody know whether or not there's voltage there to power up one of these lavs if i don't end up using it with that particular system it's fine because i have a bunch of other lav mic systems that provide power so as long as the mic isn't horrible i'll just continue to use it and i haven't even opened that up yet so i i don't know (laughs) oh that's why i love you dj you're always you always will will do all the experiments that i just can't do or don't have time for it gets oh oh man not smart enough to do myself just like last night (laughs) i ate up my almost my entire evening playing around with that whole lighter trick and then you know experimenting and testing and like a b testing and then writing about it 
And I thought, oh, this is going to be quick. I'll just get this done and then I'll go yeah. relax. And then it ended up like 930 at night and I have to get up <laughs> at five in the morning to drive somewhere. And it's like, oh man, what am I doing to myself? Yeah. But it's well, when you're, when you're passionate about, about what you do, you tend to lose time. Well, and uh, two, a lot of this stuff when I'm testing it, it's stuff that's going to help me out in the future where right. if I find out, oh man, this is a good deal. I'll probably buy like three or four of them and and add them to my kit and use them on a regular basis and send them out for rental and everything else. So that's part of what's going on here. A lot of times if I find a cheap or awesome idea, I end up using it quite a bit and I'm glad it helps everybody out. And it's good that I'm not just in my own little bubble experimenting by myself and not showing anybody what I'm doing. So <laughs> hopefully it helps. Oh, it does. It does help. It does. All right. Moving that. on down the line here. And this is actually a really interesting thing. I haven't seen this advertised anywhere um, I've got a link in the show notes here, and you guys can check that out when this goes live. But uh, Amazon's offering up $10,000 for good script and film ideas for their next round of films and television shows. And this is basically their equivalent of a pilot season for filmmakers in general. There's a link uh, straight to their site here, and I'm actually clicking on this as I speak so I can re-glance over this. But yeah, they're looking for movie script concepts. They're looking for comedy ideas, children's series, you name it. And they're even providing Amazon Storyteller software. Yeah. Which looks to be some sort of uh, simple storyboard animated studio type of thing to get your ideas into a format that they could accept and be submitted to Amazon. If they end up liking your idea, it's ten grand, uh, even if it doesn't get developed, which is, you know, pretty... Yeah. Pretty yeah, decent. Yeah, I I think that this is this is really cool, and this is adding to to the uh, um, that that notion. I don't know if you saw back when uh, Kevin Spacey first started when when he won, uh, he was doing a speech, and it was all about um, the uh, the Netflix show there, the House of Cards. Oh yeah, and yeah. saying everything's just going to be content. You know, eventually in the future, there's going to be generations of of people that <clears throat> excuse me don't don't go to the the movies to watch TV, it's just content and where you watch the content doesn't really matter. And I think this is, this is running in that direction so quickly and adding just another outlet for people to actually, you know, make money do, you know, with their ideas and scripts. Cause there's, they actually had, the, they had the story builder um, beta too, that the screenwriting tool. Yeah. Um, that they're they're letting people use and stuff. I think this is really cool. I, I hopefully uh, it gets a lot of interest so that they can up that ten thousand um, dollars as well in the future. Well, and that screenwriter uh, story builder system, man, I don't know how many people I've ever I've talked to that have told me, oh, I submitted a script to a bunch of places and it just yeah. it, it never gained any traction. And then I look at their script and it's in the wrong format. Right. And you don't <laughs> even think it. You know, a lot of people don't even think about that format is really important if you're submitting it to anything but, you know, an indie director. If right. you send it out to a film festival or anything and they open up the the draft and see, hey, this isn't in the right format, they just close it. They don't even read it and they toss it out, you know. Yeah, so yeah that's the number one thing. Having something that will actually format your stuff for you, a lot of the apps that do that uh, are in the 100 to $200 range and Amazon's providing a story builder uh, screenwriting tool for free. I mean – that's cool. Yeah, it's a great thing. It's really cool. I, I hope that uh, other providers, um, not you know, like Netflix, and maybe they they go this route if 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 this works out really well for Amazon because this is just 
this is nothing but good for for indie filmmakers or you know any anybody uh, like all these internet sensations that that are doing well on the net but maybe don't have as much uh, quote unquote mainstream uh, recognize recognizability. Well, now I'm going to flip this around and and make it a little bit bad on the opposite side. Okay, let's do it. So it's great that they're offering $10,000 for these script and film ideas. And right now Mm -hmm. that's a really good deal for a lot of filmmakers, especially if you're just starting out and you've got an awesome idea, but you don't have a a lot of uh, resources to make that sort of thing. But when this starts becoming a really big deal where everybody's doing it all the time, then we might be pushing towards the Spotify formula right. of filmmaking where now everybody is a filmmaker, everybody's creating something, and we're already starting to see that with YouTube and stuff like that where these markets were they were saturated, but they weren't saturated so much as to when you search for even the most random and mundane thing, you found 40 videos. Now yeah. you hop on YouTube and you can look for, I don't know, cows kicking dirt and you'll probably find like 15 videos of the same thing. You know, it's, it's gotten to the point where there's just tons of everything because everybody can buy a camera and start filming and and get decent footage. Well, people start doing stuff like this and generating content for on demand services like Amazon and Netflix and so on. What's going to happen to the actual pay for some of these skill sets you know, you'll have the the celebrities and the people that are well known that bring in large uh, monetary rewards for their work, but you're going to also have just as many people that are creating awesome stuff that are getting minimal recognition and just dealing with the consequences of getting paid very little. And musicians see this right now. If you're a famous musician, you're set. You know, you have an audience. Even if uh, you don't get that much money out of Spotify the one or two cents per listen because there's so many numbers you're doing good. But if you're the guy who's a musician who used to make his money selling, you know, a thousand CDs of your song, that's not really a thing anymore. And people are even moving away from the 99 cents for iTunes there. They don't want to pay for a single song. They want to be able to stream it off of their service. And they think, well, $10 a month or $15 a month. That's enough. I don't need to pay any more than that. Yeah. Well, that can only sustain so many people. Yeah, no, that's true. I, I just think that this is a good this is a good start for people to directly get to someone that actually like to, to Amazon that actually has um you know the the cloud to actually put this out and, and for to make names for people that are just starting out. I mean Walmart has been doing this for like ten years when they not necessarily just for movies, but when they, they uh uh, have the I forget what it's what they call it. I'll have to look it up. But where they they let you uh, any like inventors, um, uh, directors. Oh yeah, you're talking anything. about um, for they let products. Them come and pitch. Yeah, yeah, pitch an idea. But, but I've I've even heard of movies getting funded that way because really? Walmart will just yeah Walmart will be like well we'll carry your DVD. Hmm. So there you go, and then they take that offer of you know however hundred thousand units of DVD or whatever, and then they'll they can go get investors. So I mean it. This isn't a new format by any means, but it's just – I think this is a good good way to for people to start, get an audience, and then you know, then they can move along and make money – more money than $10,000 other ways. Yeah. I know it, ten grand does not seem like a lot, but you know what? For, well, if still, for a screenplay, if you get $10,000 yeah. and yeah. you crank out a screenplay and you know, a couple hundred hours worth of work – you know, you're probably yeah. you're at least making more than minimum wage writing. That's yeah. not 
unsubstantial. And to some, you know, depending on what your living situation is, I know people that are actors that live on ten or fifteen thousand dollars a year easily oh, yeah. or less, depending on how their work is going. And they yeah. survive. So, I mean, it's doable. Well, and this gets you, like I said, it gets you uh, your foot in the door in in a way that you know you can actually if they if they do develop it maybe you make a name for yourself and then after you can go ask for whatever you want yeah that's true having the opportunity to to bring something like that forward is probably the biggest thing and i didn't mean to really make this sound horrible with the whole uh spotify business but it's something (laughs) i worry about and i think about a lot because i've had movies on amazon on demand and on their easy (laughs) rental service and uh, they earned maybe a hundred dollars in a year, and in oh, DVD really? sales, those same movies were earning you know not a substantial amount, but like fifteen thousand or ten thousand dollars a year. So you know a hundred dollars versus ten thousand dollars in in profit. I mean, yeah, that's, that's crazy. And yeah. uh, you know, I was looking at how much we actually got in commission from our Amazon rentals, and it wasn't much. I want to say it was like a dollar or. 20 cents or something like that. You know, people, there's so many movies out there that if you're putting your movie onto a demand service like this, it's the same thing with, uh, with the music series that I was talking about earlier. You know, if your movie is good or bad, you know, it doesn't really matter, but it's going to get kind of covered by all the other films that are available on the network. And you're not going to end up watching those, you know, lower tier movies or the ones that are directed or produced by people you've never heard of. No, it's, it's true. I I mean, that that's yeah that is the devil's advocate of it i like on the other hand though and being from canada where i feel like you know you kind of have to go to the states to to get into the the big leagues like they say but i there's a there's a, a production uh, company here that was did the the whole youtube rental thing yeah for their their horror movie and they're called matchbox pictures and uh they were like number one on the um and it was real low budget uh horror movie no names anywhere um really well done though and yeah they they uh ended up being really high highly rented on youtube and got a uh i don't know a deal with Lionsgate. so then they made it they've made uh, another bigger movie and i'm sure that there's lots more down the down the pipes for them for sure yeah and they're in the states they're still a, a pretty decent market for low budget straight to television and low budget straight to on demand services Um, A couple of people I've worked with, uh, there's a movie called uh, Wake the Witch. Uh, I believe that one got a a $30,000 distribution deal, and they didn't pay their actors anything. They rented, you know, their red camera for two weeks, three weeks, and just told them to, like, run around in the forest and, you know, hired a special (laughs) effects artist with a little bit of money. And they're not getting rich off of it uh, by any means, but it was able to kind of keep them going in the convention circuit and selling DVDs in person. And honestly, a lot of the feature links I've worked on, that's where they make their most money is we send out a couple actors and myself or the director and, uh, (laughs) you know, we basically sell DVDs at conventions all over the place. And we move three or four cases at convention and that brings in several grand at each of those conventions, pays for us to go and, and pays for the production of the next film. And actors yeah. and, and a lot of the people that are involved are just excited to be able to get a free trip out of it. So we don't really yeah. honestly pay them <laughs> as much as we should or could. Probably as much yeah. as we should, but not it could because that would imply that we were actually getting rich off of it or something. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, no, it's just... 
the, the whole concept is good. It's just another way to, you know, to get noticed. And honestly, I, it, I think it's better than maybe not better. I don't, I don't know what the word is I'm looking for. I just think it's kind of a, a, a little, yeah, I'll say better. It's a little bit of a better option than, than a, what I've seen in the last like couple of years with like at the Kickstarter campaigns and yeah. things. Cause I feel like everybody's jumping on that and asking for like, you know, a hundred grand and you know, oh. they've never done anything. And, I just I'm going to tell I you right know. now I I don't discourage people from doing it. If you can succeed yeah. and go into Kickstarter, yeah, go that's great. It. But to me it always felt like a kind of having your hand out saying like, "Hey guys, you know, give me some money and I'll try and make something and hopefully yeah. it'll work, but it might suck, but the idea was really good, so you gave me a bunch of money and I ran off with it." <laughs> Yeah. And I know a lot of filmmakers where they already own their cameras, they own equipment, they have a script and everything, and they're kind of ready to go. And then they decide that they're going to go on Indiegogo or Kickstarter and, and try and generate some cash. And I, I look at them and I'm like, are you passionate about this project? Oh, yeah, yeah. This really means a lot to me. I'm like, well, why don't you make it Yeah, and go then do sell it. it? And then that way the risk is on you, not on these other people. Oh, I couldn't do that. That would... That would be stupid. Why would I do that? Because then I could lose money on it. Well, if you're really passionate about your project, then maybe you should be passionate enough to pony up or, you know, I don't know, film it once a weekend whenever you have time yeah. until you finish okay. it. I've worked on projects when I was younger where it took, you know, 15 weekends where everybody just gave up their time and the whole summer sucked, but we finished the project and we didn't spend yep. that much money and, you know, you catered food and that was about it. And right. I know it can be done, but it feels like because people are seeing other people do it, they don't feel like they need to do it, yeah. you know, invest their own money into it or put their own resources into it. I yeah. I don't know. That, and I mean, I'm not trying like, to be a jerk about it or anything. Like if you get oh. it done and it works, that's great. Go for it. But honestly, I, I'm I'm hesitant to ever do anything like that simply because I don't want to be like, hey, guys. Can yeah. you uh, spare some change? <laughs> well, and the, the other thing is, too, is I've seen way too many not hit the the funding and then just disappear into, into the blackness. Yep. And, like, you know, if people, are, if people are expecting, like, a T-shirt or something, give them the T-shirt. Yeah. Who cares if you did? Uh, I don't know. I just – I would rather be in just – and the other thing is if you don't, if you don't hit your goal – and you walk away and no one hears from you again, that's probably going to be the last time that you're going to be able to do that. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> or it should be anyway. Just because, yeah, I don't know. I've just seen that too many times. And I've been burned a few times on Kickstarters. In the old days when um, they, they had some really good projects and people were excited about them, I used yeah. to promote a few of them because I was like, oh, this is these guys are good. I talked to them. It seems like it's a good idea. But then there's delays where the the item doesn't come out for a year longer than it was supposed to, or it gets messed up and they end up spending more money trying to build it than they thought. And then you don't get anything at all, but a card that says, thank you for donating. And that happens to you a couple times. And then you're like, wait a minute, let me rethink this whole Kickstarter thing. This isn't yeah. really me going to the mall and buying a product. This is me almost in venture capital investing yeah. where I'm like, oh, hey, I'll you know, invest some money and hopefully whatever they promise me will come true. And that's all you're hoping for is that these guys that are in their basement or in their garage or whatever have the wherewithal to actually 
put something together, you know, stay on yeah. task, get in contact with manufacturers or get in contact with, you know, the people they need to make their film or whatever, and then actually follow through. And a lot of the filmmakers I see on Kickstarter, they've never done anything. They haven't even tried to do anything before. I mean, yeah. literally anything at all. And then they come to Kickstarter, they come to Indiegogo, and they have one kind of good idea or okay idea, and then they yeah. like hit up their family and all their friends for money. Yeah, and then and I love the ones that have no. There's no test footage. It's like them talking on a couch. Like yeah. I am going to do this, and then we are going to do this. Which, hey, that's great. Dreams are good. But if you just graduated school three days before you made your Kickstarter video, and then <laughs> and then you you're now you're asking for you know eighty thousand dollars to to make a short film. I, I don't know. I just there's there's better ways to do it. And like you said, if you're passionate enough to to put in the work and write it and you really want it, then you, you, yeah, you should be passionate enough to make it for $0 and figure it out yourself. Yeah. Uh, I mean, one of the things, um, (laughs) I work with a comedy troupe every once in a while. And one of the things we were talking about when we were spitballing ideas for another project was to start a Kickstarter, to start a Kickstarter video. Yeah. (laughs) So you do a video that's like with your cell phone, just, you know, holding up it in the air and and looking into it, bad audio and everything. And you're like, I don't have enough money to buy a camera to do a Kickstarter. So I need money. And then you, once you get that, then you do a nicer video and you're like, well, I could really use some audio for my video production. You guys can help me that, and then I can make something good. And then you can just continue on the path up until like you actually make something completely. And then, yeah. I don't know if that'll ever happen or materialize. It's kind of a fun idea. Sounds like I, I have. I, yeah. I, oh, sorry. I, I was just going to say, I think it would be good to, on a Wednesday, uh, put up a Kickstarter for the following Wednesday's lunch. <laughs> <laughs> like just – I'm, I really – next Wednesday, I want to treat myself to, you know, like a nice hamburger at this particular restaurant in my town. And I need $15. Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a great idea. Yeah, I think it'll – That's like be right up there perfect. with the potato salad guy. Yeah. <laughs> All right, moving on down the line here. Uh, last thing on our news list is the Adobe announcement that they will be moving solely to 64-bit operating systems for Lightroom 6. Lightroom 5 users will still be able to install Lightroom 5 on 32-bit systems, but Adobe wants to move forward with more features. And this is a quote from their press release. Focusing our work on more modern operating systems and architectures allows us to spend more time adding functionality and requests from users, including additional advantages in image features and improved general application performance. So it sounds like basically... They want to use 64-bit processing for everything so that they can basically standardize their entire tool set and do a better job with the next round of photo correction tools. What do you think about this? Are you a 32-bit operating system user? Or is that going to affect you? Um, yeah, it would affect me. I don't use Lightroom a lot, a lot. I'm up for a, I'm probably up for a computer upgrade at any any moment anyway. But but you know, I, I think it's a, I think it's kind of brass and ballsy of Adobe to, to do it but at, at the same time it's it's kind of good I mean it's not like you can't use Lightroom you still have five um, but yeah I mean it, yeah it's it's uh, excluding people but at the same time they're they're trying to make the product better so all the power to them well that's going to put a hard limit too on 
new cameras because right now every new release of Lightroom is basically the next round of support for raw codecs for different right. manufacturers and what have you. And with Lightroom stopping for those users at five, that means you're pretty much freeze framing the selection of cameras that are available right now as their all time use until such time as they upgrade their computer. Now, the other issue with the 32 bit systems is you're limited by the amount of RAM it can access. So that could also be a major issue on the back end for them trying to handle photos and, and things like that. Um, generally, though, now I I used to say uh, it didn't really matter whether you went 32 bit or 64 bit, depending on like what your workflow was and what you're doing. But it's so cheap to get a new computer and to yeah. get a nice <laughs> processor and everything. You're talking an investment of less than a thousand dollars on the PC side, and on the Mac side, uh, probably a little more spendy. <laughs> Yeah, if you, uh, you I know, mean, if you want, yeah, if you want to, you can. I guess you could buy used, but yeah, it's, for it's, the Mac side, take whatever the PC costs and just double it, double it, and then <laughs> add like two hundred bucks for any yeah. accessories that you want, like a mouse. Yeah. <laughs> oh no, it'll come with a mouse. We added uh, magic to the title, and now uh, it's more expensive. Just deal yeah, with it. Now it's a hundred and seventy dollars instead of eighty. Uh, uh, no, I, I yeah. I, I don't know. I, I think, it, like I said, I th- it makes it makes room for, for innovation, though. Don't you agree? Yeah, I do, actually. I'm, I'm happy that uh, they are, like you said, kind of being ballsy on this and making that yeah. hard-edged decision. A lot of times, like Microsoft and, and some of the other companies we've talked about earlier have kind yeah. of like held on to their old stuff for a long time, and because of that, yeah. it's limited what they can do in the future. Adobe's kind of been this way for a long time with uh, CUDA support and the new versions of uh, Premiere and now moving to the cloud and, and everything. When they yep. moved to the cloud, they basically said, hey, look, if you're using six, that's yeah, it, buddy. That you're done. Yeah. You know, that's as far as you go. From here on out, new Kodak support, new everything that's only yeah. available for cloud users. And even with cloud, man, um, they have the original CC that was released. Now they have uh, CC uh, 2014, Right. And then they're talking about releasing 2015. So I'm actually at the point where I'm having to uninstall different versions of the cloud to make room for the next version on my SSDs. Yeah. Well, and and honestly, the, to go back to what you said about when they changed to the cloud, that was what that was what got me to to actually go to Adobe in a subscription. Like to, to that's what convinced me to fully switch everything over to them because really? for. for well, for me, that was the first time that I could um, afford to actually own everything that they had, which I kind of was always like, eh, I'll switch from Final Cut when I when I can afford to buy After Effects or when I can. Yeah, and it was just it wasn't I could I just couldn't couldn't see myself doing it. But that actually, yeah, that was what decided it for me. And because I love After Effects, I'm a huge After Effects user. Yeah, Adobe's whole product line is really nice. Yeah. I'm I'm happy with it. I pay for my subscription. And yeah. if you're poor out there, guys, and I know a lot of us are, um, consider getting a student edition or a yeah. student subscription. Everybody knows a teacher or a student somewhere. And if you, you can bet. hit them up, the licenses are stackable. So buy oh, yeah. two or three of them when you can get them for, you know, 14 or $12 a month and just stack them Seriously. on top of each other and you'll have four or five years worth of editing without issue. Oh, for sure. And because, like, what was it before when you actually had to buy everything separately and you had to pay for updates, right? Uh, I want to say I spent about $1,500 on it to $2,000, depending on whether I got the master collection or the editor's edition. 
And then the updates were free until you got to the next round. And then oh, you basically, was, yeah. when they stepped from like four to five, then you paid another 600 bucks for the upgrade. And yeah. now what they basically have done is if you figure out the full value ex- uh, subscription, which I think works out to like $49 a month, it's about what you would have paid for the upgrade cycle every year when right. they came out with a new version. So yeah. that's and kind of what's buy- going on. Yeah, you can get that. Like even the year, like if you want to save even a little bit more, just grab that the whole yearly rate. Yeah, that's even better. I mean, I do it monthly. Just I don't know why, but I I buy mine stackable. Um, I wait until about the end of the year, right before tax season, and for whatever reason, that's when they usually have their like crazy sales on on their uh, subscription, and then I just buy it outright for the entire year. So. That's it does save it saves you a few months. Yeah, and it works out to I think because I buy it like that and I wait until it's on sale, I think I end up paying like twenty six dollars a month. Yeah. Which I mean, it sucks because uh, I'm paying it all in one shot, but man, twenty six dollars a month, that's like giving up coffee and a couple of times of eating out every month yeah. to have a full fledged editing system that's completely updated. And the yeah. other thing I do, and I know this is gray territory, but I'm gonna tell you anyway. Um okay. I work with uh, several other editors and they're not as substantially or as financially sound as I am. So when they need to edit something, a lot of times I will log out of my Adobe account and let them log into my Adobe account so that they can do their editing. And you're only allowed to have one open license at a time. But right. uh, well, they say that, but Adobe actually allows you to have up to two open at a time so that you can have one for your desktop and one for your laptop. So right. if there's someone that you're working with on a project, first thing you can do is store your assets on your cloud drive, which is nice. So not all your assets, yeah. you don't want to store your video and stuff, but you're editing, you know, your premiere file or whatever, you can store that on the cloud and then they can download the most recent version of the edit and then have it sync with the clips that they have available. So if you're working back and forth, that kind of creates a really convenient, all-encompassing way of doing that, and then they don't have to have a license uh, themselves. They can just cool. install it from your account. Now, you do have to trust that person yeah. because they have your password and your information and everything, yeah. and they could easily go change the password, and then you're locked out of your account. <laughs> and yeah. what are you going to do about it? I don't know. Probably nothing because you're screwed. But uh, yeah, so keep that in mind. But if you trust somebody and you're working with them on a regular basis, that's also something to think about. Maybe you can split it somehow and uh, save mm-hmm. some money there as well. Yeah. No, that, I, I never thought about that. But uh, yeah, that, that would be a good idea. But I'm just selfish. I'm like, don't touch my stuff. It's just mine. It's just mine. <laughs> this is my stuff. Get All right. off my After Effects. Moving on to the last bit here, uh, discussion topics. I've got uh, a couple of things that are kind of interesting. The one I kind of wanted to poke Canon in the eye with here yeah. is uh, Canon put together a very long and rigorous campaign against people using non-Canon OEM batteries. And I don't know if you've seen any of the videos, but they're like, this could make your camera start on fire or you'll, it'll blow it up or leak acid everywhere and your camera will be useless. I'm going to tell you right now, I use a ton of, uh, of fake batteries. They're chipped or whatever. So they show up in the camera and for the most part, they work just fine. There are exceptions. If you're a 6d user, there's some issues with some of the batteries where it'll just stop working or it won't register the right voltages or whatever. But for the 5D Mark III owners and anybody with the 7D older units, they don't have an issue at all. Uh, But now Canon's own batteries, their (laughs) OEM batteries, are causing their PowerShot line of cameras 
to burn up and be damaged by cannon batteries. So it's really ironic that Canon has gone out of their way to tell you, spend 60 or $70 a battery on our batteries because they're the best. And then those are the batteries that are actually damaging cameras. Yeah, melting all the all the cameras. Uh, well, hopefully they don't uh, go in and blame Magic Lantern for it or anything like that because I've, <laughs> that, that's that's the next thing that they're supposedly uh, cutting off for all of us indie, indie filmmakers, unfortunately. Uh, I don't know if you've did you you probably read about that right yeah that? I, uh, I haven't really discussed it on the cast because oh. it it hasn't showed up uh, enough in in real life yet to be a thing but okay. uh, the update is 1.3.3 and the mm. previous update was 1.3.2 the 1.3.2 is what's available on Canon's website right now but a few people have reported and I, I say a few because I know people who've bought cameras in the last month or so who haven't seen this firmware on there, but a few people in the forums have reported that there's a a 1.3.3 update that does not allow you to go backwards in your firmware on the camera, and that effectively blocks you from using Magic Lantern on your 5D Mark III. So that could be an issue. Um, Honestly, right now, even if they were to implement this everywhere tomorrow, it would still mean they would have to burn through all their back stock of cameras at B&H, True. at yeah. any of these other places like Digital Rev or what have you. So it'll take them a while before this affects everybody if that's the case. Now, that's a really bad thing for Canon because you're talking a lot of ill will where Magic Lantern has kind of brought sales back from the grave yeah. for the 5D Mark III. Yeah. It was yep. tapering down to around uh, 1999 on sale about a year and a half ago, and then when the raw hack came out, it shot up through the roof and went up almost back to full retail. So, yep. if Canon really does this, man, uh, I don't know what to say. They're gonna lose a lot of people, or at least make them very upset. Oh yeah, I I I think honestly, I think maybe it was just. Uh... I don't know because probably like a fluke, said, like a mistake, yeah. like one of them made it out they weren't expecting, and then they're like, "Oh, somebody's like Jeff, why did you do that?" Yeah, he's <laughs> <laughs> like, "Oh, sorry." Yeah, but, I, th- uh, I don't know. I That's such a bad business move. Just well, in- the only way it would, even business wise, it would make any sense is if the next five D Mark Three or Mark Four has right. some kind of like feature that Magic Lantern is now offering, and Canon wanted to put a stop to that, but. I can't see or, that being the case. Or if they do offer it, uh, you know, they're not, why would they stop? You know, the camera from doing what it was doing before. You still have yeah. hundreds of thousands of cameras out in the wild that people are obviously not going to upgrade to the next version to you know lock themselves yeah. out of a tool that they normally use. Well, I don't. I don't even like. It, it doesn't even make any sense why they would stop Magic Lantern anyway. It's something that someone did that cost them nothing. Yeah, sold them more products and if it does break your camera you're probably just going to buy another canon again and put magic lantern on it again exactly so, <laughs> you know what i mean yeah so I and i was hoping actually in this whole like build-up of magic lantern that the canon would actually buy those that, guys yeah. out and yeah. you know incorporate them into their firmware right. development because obviously their cameras are capable of doing all these things and yeah. Canon either doesn't have the time to take advantage of it, uh, chooses not to for marketing reasons, or whatever strange corporate decision they're making. And, and they if just they, don't pay them. They're yeah. just like, man, you'll do it for free. Why don't, why don't you just keep doing it for free? Yeah, I know. <laughs> but uh, Canon keeps falling behind on this stuff. And yeah. if yeah. they don't come up with something that's like at least somewhat tempting for filmmakers and photographers, 
people are going to start moving away to Sony or to these other companies that are being innovative. Oh yeah, and there's a, there's a lot more competition on the block now that are that are completely video based. I mean, you know, Panasonic came back with a vengeance. Not that they ever left completely with their the GH2 and GH3, but then now, I mean, that's everybody's. There's like this mass exodus. You're either going with the GH4 or the you know you see a lot of the the Sony um, A7 cameras. Yeah, and and I mean, I don't know that. Although we were talking about the C100 last time I was on, and, and uh, we, were, we were having a good laugh, but the Mark II is looking a lot better than than the than the, the original one. That what I'm seeing from the, the the C100, the Mark II version. Yeah, pretty cool. They 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 fixed some things. Not perfect, but they fixed some things. I mean, it's still I wouldn't buy it because it's too expensive for me. But well, and I'd at the price, pay. there's so many other cameras that are. It's in that true. same price range that offer up a lot more than the C100 offers. Yeah. Honestly, unless you really are stuck in the Canon ecosystem, man, I I think even the um, Vericam from Panasonic, isn't that about 4,500 for the base model? I want to <laughs> yeah, say that true. is. So, and that's like a, <laughs> that's a super 35 millimeter sensor. Yeah. So it's the same as the C100. You're in the Panasonic camp. So you are uh, that one does have PL mount, so you're gonna have to probably rent lenses or do some kind yeah. of adapting, which could be kind of a pricey. Uh, yeah pricey deal. But still, man, even if you don't go that route, there's a a lot of other Sony cameras out there that are offering up some pretty sexy looking, you know, options. Oh yeah, oh, oh, yeah for sure, for sure. I yeah, I don't, I don't know. I, I love the landscape right now. I love that they're actually competing because it used to be a lot more of a desert than a landscape. Yeah, and a beautiful lush green landscape. Yeah, and in the old days when there was like three camera providers and only one of them actually made a good camera, the rest of them just kind of sucked. Yeah, <laughs> it's true. It's true. It was like that for a long time too. Uh, but uh, now it seems like they're they've really they've really tuned into what we all want. So. Yeah. All right. Last well, thing on I, the uh, last thing on the list here is uh, your ribbon microphone from Rode. Yeah. I've kind of got a, a post here describing what ribbon microphones are and why you might want them. Uh, B&H has a really interesting article up on that as well as some video footage. Uh, basically, to to summarize this, it's probably not going to be for most filmmakers. Uh, what a ribbon mic does is because it's a ribbon stretched across a piece of material and it's absorbing pressure waves from all sides, it's really excellent. If you're doing something like a vocalist with a live instrument. So in the example of this road video, and you guys can check that out in the show notes, uh, they're basically recording a piano with the singer. And if you move the mic correctly between the piano and the singer, you get the natural acoustical balance of those two items in the same room. And if you ever heard about uh, old recording studios in in the 70s and 60s where they only did one mic recordings of these famous yeah. bands... The idea there was to place the mic in the best possible spot in the studio to capture everything all at once. Yeah. And that's when you would probably want something like this. If you had a jazz band or, you know, a string quartet or something like that, and you wanted to have them around the mic in kind of a pattern, and you wanted it to sound just like it would if you were listening to it as you stood there, the ribbon mic, that's what it's going to do for you. I don't know if you have anything to add to that, John. Well, I was just thinking, like, in t- for for filming though. I mean, could you use? I, I, you're much more tuned to audio than me, but could you use this for um, 
uh, if you're going to do a mixture of multiple mics in a room just to get that room ambience of some of people talking, if it's really specific to the story? You could, actually. I would think the best way to do that, though, would actually be to roll some ambient noise recording on yeah. a mic like this without yeah. anybody else there. Uh, something I do on a regular basis when I'm working in an area that has kind of mediocre sound is I record what I, I call it a sound floor. Some people call it something different, but I just go yeah. in with a microphone and record 10 minutes of audio with just nobody the there, just a, yeah. of the room. And it sounds weird, but you, you crank up the gain on your mic and you record it. You'll see a little bit of movement down around the minus uh, 40, minus 30 dB range. And once you've got that, you put it into your uh, timeline and you loop it. And you can't tell that it's being looped because it's a 10-minute clip and it's just noise in the room. And then when you have people actually uh, delivering their lines and stuff, when you're cutting, you'll end up with a gap normally. And you can hear yeah. the gap if the, there's no sound bed for the audio to sit on. But if yeah. you have that minus 30, minus 40 audio in the background, you suddenly have a continuous noise that makes it sound like all of them are speaking simultaneously and you can't hear the cuts in between. And that's something that you kind of learn over time to do, and they don't really talk about it much anywhere. I mean, maybe they'll teach you that in school, but a lot of times people just kind of figure it out on their own. And having that noise floor, or if you're, if you're working in a place where you want it to sound like maybe they're by the train, in reality, you can't actually film by a train because it's really, really loud. But yeah. you can go get sound from a couple blocks away of the train driving by and then tone it way down and put it in the background, and suddenly you have that aviance of a train driving around in the background that's not really there and it makes the scene come together a little bit more those little sort of insignificant touches are what brings you up from just a regular guy with a camera to a filmmaker quote unquote yeah, yeah and and sound really is 60 percent of of the movie right you, you really have to uh because i i've done um restaurant scenes and stuff where we've gone back to the restaurant either before or after the next day the same day whatever in the same room and just recorded people like just kind of from a distance just the whole just the ambiance of the of the the restaurant the plates clinking and things like that <laughs> the dogs fighting yes that kind of stuff. i've got some ambient noise going on right now uh my wife isn't yeah. home yeah. and the animals came downstairs to visit they are wrestling in the background so there's my <laughs> secret audio tip for you guys all right, last thing is pick of the week here. Oh, pick of the week. I, I, uh, so my, my pick of the week, um, this week I've, I've been using, I needed a really fast lens. And for me, I've been using, uh, for my APA um, SC sensors, um, the Sigma 30 millimeter 1.4 has been my, my go-to lens for the last couple weeks, actually. Now, are you using um, the art version or are you using the original? No, I'm using the original version. I, I did not... Yeah, I've, I've tried out both. Yeah, I wasn't too too happy with the art version. Uh, I don't know where did that come from. I don't know why that they did change that. <laughs> uh, the original one was considered a classic by many. Yeah. I owned it up until just recently when I was doing some lens changes changes in my collection. But the original thirty one four from Sigma, I have a video out on it somewhere on YouTube, and you can go check that out. Maybe I'll add it to the show notes, but. Uh, I compared it directly to the Canon 35mm f1.4 full frame, and man, I I still was kind of partial to the look of the Sigma. I don't know yeah. if it was just because of the 
the color science is going on inside the lens or what they're doing with the decoding on there, but it kind of had a nice punchy contrasty feel to yeah. it that made it really enjoyable to use. It didn't look the same as my 3514 L series lens, but it had a personality that I really enjoyed. Um, yeah. the art series lenses, I've heard mixed reviews about several different flavors of them. Uh, a lot of people like the look of the original Sigma 50 millimeter F14, but didn't care for their art version. Yeah. And they liked the focus system of the art version. And for photography, a lot of people were like, yeah, it's, it's okay. I don't mind it, you know, but they yeah. never really said like, oh, this is blowing my mind. I just love yeah. this thing or anything. So. Well, it just the the old the original version just like honestly, if you just feel them one in one hand, one in the other, it, the, the art version somehow it's it just it feels like they cheaped out on just even the build. But the 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 new one is like beefy and it's bit or the old one I should say, excuse me though it's beefy, it's big. You can tell because it's got the little the little gold band around it. So if anybody's actually looking for it, and I mean, good good to know if if anybody's a fan of like I am of uh, Mister Candy Tie in France. I know I brought him up before, but. Uh, he just blows me away because he uses, you know, a Canon T2i, and this is even now. And the only lens he uses is the old version of the 30 millimeter 1.4. That's the only lens that he uses um, on all of his stuff. So, and I'm glancing on eBay right now. now. The used price of the Sigma 30 millimeter f1.4 is sitting at about 300 to 315. So, yeah. if you're in the market, that is a really affordable lens. I like it. I didn't let it leave my collection until just recently when I started scaling down on my, uh, you know, crop sensor cameras. Now that I'm almost all full frame or in the micro four thirds department, I didn't really have any use for them, but yeah, no, but it's, it's a great lens. I, and yeah, I got mine used, um, with warranty left on it for 300 bucks flat. Nice. Canadian that's a good price. Oh, so, that's so it was really, like eighty so cents talking, a, on the dollar, right? Yeah, yeah. So yes, yeah, yeah. Like so, you're in the two hundreds. Oh man, that's good. <laughs> so come on up to Canada. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah, head over to Robert's cameras and pick pick yeah. yourself up something good. Bob, yep, Bob's igloos cameras. <laughs> All right, uh, my pick of the week here is actually it's actually this mic that I'm using right now. Um, I have, it sounds awesome. I picked up the uh, Rode Procaster, and I've been using this for the last couple of episodes. And man, you know, honestly, I have a somewhat of a high-pitched voice that's uh, a little nasally. The Rode Procaster seems to kind of level that off a little bit. It does a really good job. I just had my dogs basically rustling around me on the floor, and you could barely hear it. It was barely registering because this microphone has really good side and back noise rejection. And it's a dynamic mic instead of a condenser mic, so it doesn't require power to operate. You do have to be fairly close to it, but that's a good thing for this sort of situation where you want to have your audio nice and clean, but you don't want to pick up uh, people walking around upstairs or you know your family doing things in the background. So if you're looking for something for voiceover work or possibly for a podcast like this or a broadcast application, definitely go check out the uh, Procaster. The mic itself is about... $215 and B&H has a special on the entire kit, which includes the flexible arm, which I'm moving around right now. So if oh, you, it's flexible. Yeah, it's flexible. And <laughs> if you can't hear that because it doesn't squeak at all, even though it's spring loaded. And so I can basically move my mic up yeah, and down a lot too. <laughs> and uh, it doesn't cause any issue with audio. Awesome. And that also includes the suspension arm and it has a mount that allows you to either connect it to your desk or to drop it into one of those computer holes. So, you know, if right. you ever have a, a desk that has like a circle cut out already for your cables or whatever, you can put it right into that. 
and then mount it that way as well. So if you're going to use it permanently in an installation, you can also get a hole saw and drill the exact size hole that you need to mount it to your desk. There you go. Um, that, that's probably not an option for people with glass desks, but um, I'm in front of a <laughs> wooden desk right now, so there you go. Um, and sorry, I know we're going over a little bit, but just just so people know, how do you uh, how do you, how do you how are you running this into your computer for for recording? Are you just recording with the Tascam, or how are you how are you doing this? All right, so. I can't see it. This is actually, and I'm I'm turning the video over oh, for you go. so you can see a little bit. Uh, basically, what's going on here is I've got the Rode Procaster going directly into the Tascam DR60D. So the Tascam DR60D is bringing in the audio. Then it has another channel that's being used coming into the Tascam, and that is the output of my M-Audio 1814 audio adapter bringing the audio from Skype back into the DR60D. Then the audio from that is being submixed inside of the DR60D uh, because you have panning options in there. And then I'm only using the left channel to send the audio back out to Skype because Skype only allows you to send a mono channel out. Right. So because of that, I have my mixer right here and my... Um, uh, basically sampler this is a mpc 1000 and the mpc 1000 has all my samples loaded into it and it's going into the other two channels on the tascam dr60d because it's a four track recorder and so it has stereo recording internally but for skype since it's being mixed down to mono anyway i just basically send only the left channel of the output of the mpc sampler into skype to go back to you so that's how you're hearing my audio and that's the whole mix right there I know yeah. a lot of people recommend if you're doing a podcast to go buy a submixer, but honestly, the Tascam DR60D and now its successor, the uh, DR70D, both mm. of those have some very decent mixing options. You can uh, you have to go fiddle around in the menus and, and do that kind of junk, but once you do, you can pan channels, you can control levels on all those channels, you can set up... I have a limiter basically running in the background on this as well as a compressor so that the audio is already sort of ready to go as soon as it comes out. And then I don't have to worry about, you know, stopping recording or my computer messing up or something freezing. A right. lot of times those uh, sub recording systems that you get for Skype, they're mediocre and they crash. I know a lot of people that use programma and it's yeah. hit or miss as to whether it actually does what it's supposed to do. So Having this is a really easy way to get your submixer and to do this whole Skype conference call type thing uh, without much issue. And then right now, you guys, we're not doing video yet, but we will be moving to video in the next uh, month or so. And these Logitech uh, 920, 930 uh, cameras, they look really good. They do. I know you are you can see me right now. And I oh, mean, yeah. I guess describe to the folks like... This it's, is it's, really clear, right? It's crystal clear. That's what that's what I was. I was actually really surprised because I know, like, that I'm kind of in the dark right now. But I I know like the the um, the Mac cameras are really good. They come built into the Apple yeah. computers, and and yours is like fantastic. It looks it looks like a like a dedicated camera. Not not you wouldn't think it was a it was a, a, like a Skype camera or a, or a uh, computer camera yeah and the one i'm using right now is the logitech uh, 930e and this is the business class one the only reason i went with this versus the 920 is that this has a 90 degree field of view on its lens whereas the other oh. unit only has a um i think 75 degree angle of view which isn't that big of an issue for this sort of thing but mm -hmm. it's enough of an issue that i kind of liked being able to see everything around yeah 
And then when we start doing the video in the future, you know, if I want to like run and grab something, you'll actually be able to see me run over right. and grab something and come back to the microphone. It's kind of nice. And you can actually see the entire studio I'm in right yeah, now. That's cool. Mean, uh, the only thing I ran into is if you see when I pointed at the lights here and move yeah, it back I, around, it kind of does this weird color color shift and light shift thing because yeah, I haven't gotten manual controls for it quite yet. And it only allows so much light before it blows your face out. So right. I actually, I started out with a, a couple of lights in the studio pointed at me and I was completely white in the face. You couldn't <laughs> see me at all. I looked like a ghost because the light was just blowing out the camera. Um, and I ended up turning all of them away from me except for one little can light that's behind me back here. Yeah. And then my regular uh, photo box lights are set up on my regular prop table and everything, but uh, they're not actually aimed at me. They're aimed in their normal position. And I'm just getting re reflection off of the wall. So yeah, you're just bouncing everything. No, it's it's cool. It looks really cool. Like you could you could easily just do it the way it is, and it would it would look great. So. Yeah, and I don't think I'm gonna fancy up the studio or anything for you guys. Honestly, no, um, I don't think you should. <laughs> it'll be just like this. You know, my regular shelves across the wall that hold all of my gear are gonna be back behind me as I organize and deorganize and what have you. So. That's nice. pretty much it. All right. Where can people find you, John? Uh, you can find me. Uh, my website is jonathanapictures.com. Uh, Jonathan A. Pictures on Facebook. Um, Jonathan Vids on, on Twitter. And I actually promised John that we would hard cut this at uh, one hour. Yeah, he has now pushed me into the one hour Sorry. and 16 mark, guys. So <laughs> I apologize for that. We're going to try, because the show's been going for uh, almost an hour and a half to two hours in some cases, <laughs> yeah. uh, we're going to try and start limiting these down to one hour with possibly some extra material after the one hour mark. So just be prepared for that when the shows are a little bit shorter coming up in the future. Anyway, next awesome. week on DSLRfilmnoob.com, you'll be able to find more info on that uh, Monoprice microphone system. I'll be testing that tonight, most likely. Audio samples to go up tomorrow or possibly Friday. Actually, tomorrow is Friday. But that's it for now. Talk to you guys later. So this is your extra little tail end of the podcast thing where we said we were going to cut it off an hour and we didn't. Uh, John was asking me actually about the mixing of this Tascam DR60D. So I thought I'd talk about that a little bit. First, what did you want to know? Because I mean, what kind of equipment were you thinking about when you were watching yeah. me kind of perform this whole thing? Well, I was, I, I was like, I've got a Tascam DR60D. I've got a road, you know, I've got my, my, Road boom mics. I've got sure, you know, yeah. SM whatever, and I've got, uh, I've got. I actually can't have access to the actual sure, um, the sure like uh, the the standard radio. I don't know which one that would be. Do you know uh, what I I'm think they're thirty three model. Vocals? It's that weird, yeah. like kind of curved, the, the black one. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. So I was like, oh, how can I make this happen so I can up my audio quality as well? But. Well, okay, so the secret here, it, the mic first, um, honestly, I was using a a, uh, a boom mic before. I was using the Audio-Technica 4073, and that's one of my favorite boom mics. Just, I'm going to throw that out there really quick. That mic, you can buy it used. It shows up a lot of times on eBay for like 300 bucks or less. The mic normally is about seven or $800, 
It's a really hot mic. So if you have poor preamps on anything you're working on, that thing will make it sound like you have the best preamps in the world and they're really strong. And it'll pick yeah. people up from, you know, eight, 10 feet away. It's always been really popular in uh, news broadcasting because when they're chasing somebody down for a story or they're out in public, a lot of times you're uh, limited by the distance you can get to your subject to capture audio. And it's really good at picking up clean, clear audio from a long distance away. Um, but the mic also, because it's really good at, at picking up crisp, clean, clear audio, it will also pick up any reflection audio that's coming to it. So when I was doing oh. the podcast previously, I actually had that mic about three feet away from me in order oh, okay. to prevent it from picking up too much reflection echo from what was behind it. Right. So, and basically the way that works guys, if you're not familiar with it is your reverb or reflection is based on how far away the audio has to travel from the wall back to the microphone again. So if the microphone is closer to a flat surface, uh, far away from you, then it won't get as much time delay between the reflected wave and you speaking. And that basically eliminates or drastically reduces the audio, uh, reverb sound that you're hearing. Does that make sense? Yeah. No. Okay. That, yeah. Yeah. So um, basically, I switched over to the Rode Pro, uh, Procaster, and the Procaster is just a dynamic mic. A lot of people for these types of things are still using uh, Sure SM57s or SM58s, which yeah. are, if you've ever been in a studio, they're a pretty standard mic to use. They're very popular. People love them. And I'm basically running that directly into the Tascam uh, DR60D, and I'm using the right channel. Uh, let me double check that. Yep. No, I'm using the left channel. Excuse me. So the left channel is going in and then on the output, I actually went into the mixer setting. And if you click the mixer button on your Tascam DR60D, you'll see that there is a pan for each of the channels and you can pan them left and right. You can also set individual levels for each of those channels and everything else. So you basically have rudimentary mixer functions inside of the DR60D. When you do that, basically you pan your audio that needs to go back to the person to the left and you pan their audio to the right so that it doesn't go back to them and you only use the left channel to send out or the right channel depending on how you organize it back to them. Because otherwise, you'd be hearing your own voice coming back yep. to you and you'd be getting a feedback loop that would make some horrible, awful <laughs> sounding audio. And I could do that to you, but I'm not a jerk, so I'm not going to. <laughs> so once you do that, then this is a four track recorder. So if you have any other audio sources that you want to feed into it, you can. In this case, I have the MPC 1000, which is a beat making tool that uh, rappers use to make, um, you know, basically make their sound bed for their <laughs> rap songs. Uh, you can load samples into each of the pads and it's a finger drum system. So every time you tap a pad, it plays a sound. So in this case, I have some hand claps. And I have a laugh track, and then I have a way to mute this for all of the tracks. So if I want to stop audio right away, I can. Then nice. on the MPC-1000, it's got what's called the Q-Link fader. And you can set that up to do kind of whatever you want. Well, in this case, I have it set up to be a master fade for every single sample. So in the case of the theme song, like this guy right here, I actually control the volume of the theme song with the Q-Link fader and right. that bother that affects every single sample so if I were to switch over to the news sample 
it stops one and I can still fade that up and down just like I do with the main song. And that's really awesome because if you have a laugh track, for example, you don't want the laugh track to continue on. That sample is actually like 35 seconds. So yeah. I can just ride the fader and bring that down uh, whenever I think it, it feels comfortable to bring down the laugh track or the clap track or whatever. And that's basically giving you the same thing that you would do with a normal mixer setup, only now... Uh, instead of using a soundboard on my computer and having to try and click things with the mouse, I can literally just reach over to the side here, hit a key, and then fade it down with one finger. And you guys can't see anything yet, but uh, John's kind of like dancing to the theme music. Uh, I, how can I not? Well, that really gives you a ton of control over everything. And they sell yeah. a smaller version of the MPC-1000 that has the same feature. It's the MPC-500. And you can get those for like 150 to 200 bucks. And it's, again, it's a sampler. It allows you to make beats. So if you need to make a jingle or something like that, you can. And in fact, um, this, the new song right here, I finger drummed all the drums for that. And the bass guitar and everything on this sampler and then oh, really? put together the good. vocals and everything all on this little device. Uh, this one in particular is hacked, so it's running uh, JJOS, but that allows it to be a multi-track recorder as well as a full-fledged sampler. So you can load in bass drum, snare, hi-hat, all that business into all your pads. And then you can also track audio like uh, vocals, guitar, or whatever over the top of that on different channels. So you can cue up your samples, play the drums with your fingers, and then you can layer some bass over it and layer some vocals over it. And this allows up to 120 megs of auto, uh, audio sampling in the RAM that's built into it. So that uh, basically that's about four to five minutes of a 16-track song. And oh, yeah. the samples, it's a 32-bit, uh, or excuse me, a uh, a 32, uh, what's the word? It's not quantized, the name for the number of, of sounds it can play simultaneously. Do you know what I'm talking about? Uh, I think so. Uh, uh, it, for, no. uh, my brain is not working right now, and I can't remember, but there's a name for the number of samples something can play. Uh, polyphony is the term. That's the term. So <laughs> That's not uh, what I was thinking of. Yeah, polyphony uh, is the number of samples that can be played simultaneously, and you often okay. hear that associated with keyboards. Keyboards have like eight polyphony or um, uh, two or four or their mono keyboards. That means you can only play one note at a time or eight notes at a time. And it used to be yeah. an issue with older keyboards because if you had both hands on the keys at the same time, you would actually end up cutting off certain keys while you were playing. It's not an issue with newer keyboards, but this particular unit has 32 samples simultaneously playing. That's its ability. So you can't go over 32 tracks total when you're sampling into it. But usually, especially if you're doing like drum sampling and you're drumming out bass drum and, and snares and hi-hats, the bass drum's not playing all the time. So it's only using up the time that it's actually occupying. And then it opens up that space again. So it's not very hard or it's not very easy to actually get up to 32 samples playing simultaneously. And then if you're using mono samples instead of stereo samples, it only takes up one, one of those 32 slots instead of two of the 32 slots. So that means that you're using even less. And how often do you need a stereo bass drum sample? I mean, really? <laughs> Never. Exactly. And I mean, maybe you can get crazy. Like sometimes if I'm getting fancy, in this case, um, uh, the news jingle. The, 
the bass drum and the snare sound kind of fat? It's because yeah. I used a bottom side and top sample of the snare, and then I used a um, a bass drum from the internals and a bass drum from the side sample so that I got a fatter sound. So I was using f- five samples, six samples for the bass drum and the snare, but that was only because I really wanted to like make it sound fat. I could have mixed those down to a, a single mono hit and done it that way, but I get wacky with it where I like set one up to play at one volume and one to play at another volume and it to be pressure sensitive. So depending on how hard you hit it, it changes it and stuff. But if you listen to the song, it's, it's snare, bass drum, hi-hat, and then one hi-hat ring, the, the tip of the hi-hat. Right. And so... You're almost not using the hi-hat at all. You're just basically bass drum and snare, and then that's it. And then there's six vocals total, because there's the high-pitch vocal right here. Time for the news. And then there's three of the time for the news vocals before that. So that's just an example of how powerful this is. I know we've kind of moved from uh, (laughs) houses set up to a full-fledged audio tutorial on, you know, making beats and stuff. But if you go onto my YouTube channel and watch some of the old, old stuff, I originally got my start uh, teaching rappers how to make beats. A long time ago, I used to run a recording studio, so I did a ton of audio stuff. And I'm a fluent musician. When you guys are actually able to see the studio, there is a digital trap set right back there behind me. There are three keyboards underneath tarps over here, bass uh, bass guitar amp. Uh, one of those modeling uh, stereo amps is actually guitars, back behind me. Yeah, guitars, drums. drums. There's, a, There's an old Jupiter kinds. behind me, all kinds yeah. of fun stuff. And then, in fact, uh, right here in front of me in my audio rack oh, wow. is a Jupiter. Or no, excuse me, a supernova. Yeah. And so I like I've got a full set of analog keyboards and everything. And I know <laughs> it sounds weird when I'm talking about music stuff, but honestly, guys, if you have more than one skill that you can market to your customers, uh, that makes you a lot more valuable. And if you it's become true. proficient in not only filmmaking, but also audio, audio is something that not very many filmmakers have really thought about or become good at. If you mm-hmm. can create a jingle really quick and uh, bring it to fruition in a day and come to the client and say, hey, not only can I film your commercial, but I've also created a couple of sample jingles that you could possibly use with this. What do you think? Now you are way more valuable to that guy and yeah. you're double collecting. You're collecting on the jingle portion plus you're collecting on the filmmaking portion. So now you're getting paid twice. And yeah. with that skill set, it also gives you the ability to do uh, a lot of the audio stuff in post that a lot of people aren't familiar with, like noise cancellation, uh, gate filtering for audio to get the noise out of it, uh, recording the noise floor and submixing that in, having multiple tracks of audio running simultaneously, doing yeah. all the other stuff that you need to do in order to really build the sound bed for your video production. Yeah, no, it's true. It's it's really good because I mean I come from from bands, not being a, an, a recording engineer myself, but uh, you know that's where I started bands and and uh, and and playing instruments of all sorts and shapes and writing stuff and, and doing a lot of recording in studios and it definitely definitely helped me out as a filmmaker just to understand audio and what good audio is. Well, and also that doubles as the ability to possibly fall into some uh, music video gigs. Because as a musician, 
if you are out touring with a band or playing even casually at the bars, you're going to yeah. meet other bands. And if they get signed or they come into a substantial amount of money or they want to create something a, a niche on YouTube, they're going to need a filmmaker. And a lot of times they do actually have a little bit of cash to spend on that sort of thing. So you might, honestly, unless you are working with a really big band, you're probably never going to get rich doing music videos. Yeah. But it is a really awesome creative experience because a lot of times bands don't really know anything about what they want. They just want it to be cool. And you are left wide open with all kinds of quick cuts, all kinds of like crazy ideas. If you want to just film somebody, you know, singing or in the case, I just watched a video where they film someone singing, put their lips on a phone and put their eyes on different smartphone devices and moved them around the screen. Those are all sorts of things that like you normally don't even get the opportunity to do. A lot of times, if you're in the market that John and I are occupying, you're doing corporate safety videos or you're doing like speeches (laughs) that are going out to the minions who are working in the field, or you're doing little quick car commercials where you're basically just filming cars for their online sites so that they can post them, you know, all those sort of mundane, uncreative, boring things that are out there that pay the bills. <laughs> they're not fun things. They're just the things that you do to pay for camera equipment and continue yeah. to eat. So yeah. having these band projects and anything where you can be really fun and creative and still even make a little bit of money off of it is well worth exploring. Yeah, and and when when it isn't uh, when it isn't fun, and I am getting bored, I I love the fact that I can grab you know a guitar and my drums and whatever, and if if I'm losing interest, I'll you know do exactly what you say. I'll record. I like to record stuff analog, the old school way, like just actually playing stuff because I don't have all the electronic stuff. But I just record it really quick, simple things, and I'll use that as background music instead of uh, you know putting it into the building it into the budget or anything like that. Yeah. One of the uh, one of the studios I used to work in actually had a twenty four track reel to reel. So oh yeah, yeah, and cool. people used to, and that was back in the uh, late nineties and early two thousands when everybody was using DAT. So they were yeah. super excited. People were excited because they thought they were using like something niche back then. Now everybody's in love with that sort of thing. Um, I run a mostly digital um, small recording studio here, but I sold off all my major stuff. I used to own a couple of uh, 48 track boards and a bunch of the um, 24 bit 96K sampling head units that replaced the old ADATs and went to a hard drive. The, oh, cool. uh, the leases still made them, but they were the HD DATs or whatever they called them. Yeah, yeah. And so I don't have it all that stuff anymore. Now I'm down to, I've only got 24 tracks in the studio. And oftentimes I find myself actually just using my sampler as my main means of recording because as one person, you don't often need to record a bunch of tracks simultaneously. It's not a, a thing. So you're basically left like, Oh, well, okay, let's put some drums together. Okay. I got that. Let's put the, you know, bass or guitar together. And then the really cool thing about sampling, and this is still kind of diving into musician stuff, <laughs> is when you create something, like you play the guitar and maybe you have a riff in mind and you, you're excited about it. Well, you play it and then you think, well, wait a minute, I don't really have anything else to go with that. Well, if you put it into a sampler, now you can chop every single note that you just played on the guitar up and then organize them onto the pads on the sampler itself and play them in any order you want. Yeah. And because the riff was originally intended to to be a riff all the way through, 
that has notes that match everything in that entire pattern. So then you basically have created a scale by itself with very original sounding bits and pieces because it was played naturally that you can break apart, reform into anything you want and completely turn your song from what you intended into a beautiful new or ugly new yeah. or whatever you want. You know I mean? It can really turn into something cool. So yeah, that, that is cool. That's a good tip. That's good. I'm going to use that. <laughs> All right. On that note, this ends the secondary portion of the cast. Thanks John for coming out today and hey, thanks no everybody problem. for listening. I really appreciate all the support I've been getting from everybody. So that's great. I look forward to the video format of this very soon and we will be confirming full-time co-hosts uh, Ooh, in the near future. So uh, stay tuned for that. I'll talk to you guys later.